Welcome to the Dogs, your fortnightly dose of Greyhound racing interviews, insights, and a whole lot more. With your hosts, Joe Andrews and Danny Jackson. Welcome to episode 23 of Gone to the Dogs. I can't quite believe we're up to episode 23, but as always, my, well, I am Danny Jackson and my co-pilot is... Joe Andrews. Hello. How are you doing, Danny? Yeah, good. Busy. Very, very ridiculously busy. Barely know what day it is. Don't know really what my name is at these <laughs> these times, but all is well. And um, yeah, it's just busy with work, basically. And going back to my head for Fat Boy Slim and going to Amsterdam as well. So quite busy in personal life as well, but I'm just trying to juggle all the balls. And um, at the moment, none of them have dropped. So that's that's good news. <laughs> How are you, Joe? I'm all right, yeah, but you said you're busy at work, but haven't you got a new role you can tell us all about? I have, yeah. So I don't know if ambassador's too strong a word, but I'm now the new face of Greyhound Racing at William Hill. I know I was always the old face, but now since I went freelance, obviously they've got their in-house um, experts to do it, and now they've decided that they want me back. So Congrats. I'll be doing... Thank you. I'll be doing... Few bits of filming days. I went down to the Greyhound Trust uh, two weeks ago because we've had Greyhound Week uh, all week here at William Hill. This week, doing you know extra place races that still carries on for the weekend. By the way, uh, extra place races. Got bet and get races. We've got um, ambassador pick enhancements um, previews from me. So all sorts of different things going on. But the previews will be ongoing. Uh, obviously, we'll we'll boot up things for the Derby, maybe the Irish Derby as well. So. It's exciting, uh, especially because William Hill, of course, have the betting TV too, um, which is every Greyhound race from pretty much everywhere, <laughs> um, even over, over in Ireland as well in the early morning parts and some of the evening meetings as well. So we have lots of Greyhound racing and it's a dedicated channel as well. So that's going to start kicking up a gear uh, from next year as well. So uh, they got me in at the right time so that we can start making it sing. So Lovely stuff. Yeah, good fun. And uh, great to see uh, Bookmaker really going for it on the Greyhound front. So glad that it's my home Bookmaker as well, which is good good news for me. Get yourself down the shops and online. There you go, a little bit of push for your employer as well on the podcast. How's that? Indeed. I'll uh, I'll now want sponsorship. Thanks, Hills. Uh, no, I'm joking. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, that's, that's all exciting news in the career of me. But... Have you got any exciting news, Joe? Are you going anywhere? Are you off to Africa no, at any time? No, no exciting news from me. No, baby's been a pain in the hole the last couple of days. So, uh, yeah, apart from that, like Lauren's taking the brunt of it, my wife. But oh. uh, she was up every hour last night. She's been whining all morning. So, uh, happy days. I just want a good night's sleep. It's all I want. Is that too much to ask? It is when you got a baby, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. No, so nothing exciting. Obviously, we've had um, Lively Lauren um, got in a tilt at Oxford soon and she did her first run back for, I think, since September and she did a, a cracking time at Oxford on last Friday. So she's uh, she'll be back for the trial stakes a week today, which is great. So that's all exciting. Um, but other than that, no, nothing, nothing exciting, boring. But, Danny, well, we've had some... I'll bring the rock and roll. Well, yeah, all right, fine, <laughs> fine. But we've had some exciting winners of Category 1 finals in Britain, haven't we, to talk about. And we were just saying off off air or off podcast, we can't remember whether we mentioned some of these because they seem like ages ago, but we'll go through them again, won't we? Because mm -hmm. we've had the puppy collar at Oxford 
which was won in great fashion by Longfellow um, for Matt Darnell and the Horse and Hound Six Syndicate. So congratulations to them. I know George who's in the syndicate, obviously Lawrence with Matt. So I'm really pleased that they uh, brought home the bacon. I know this has been a this was a plan for some time, and it was a good quality final, and it was a it was a nice win. So so that was impressive. And then um, we've had the Oaks, Danny, and um, you know uh, one of our favourites of the podcast finally got a Cat One success. Whoop, whoop. Yeah, she was absolutely superb. I mean. Everybody knows I've championed No Rush for ages because she's just such a gutsy bitch and she's been in so many good finals. And finally, on her final run of her career before she goes off and has loads of little rushies and little puppies, then she got the category one that we we knew was in her locker somewhere. We knew she could get one. Now she finally has and absolutely thrilled uh, for the team as well. I think she's just a cracking bit. She's always been so, so good. And to finally be rewarded with that win must have been a thrill for all connections. So well done to everyone. It was very professional and never really in doubt. She did what she needed to do. Um, you know, there was no slowly away or anything like that. She just got the job done nicely. So congrats to um, Carol Weverall and obviously, um, you know, the Purdies as well. So great to see. Who else have we got in the locker? We- wow. We had a, an amazing Kent Derby final, mm-hmm. which was won by Churchfield Sid um, for the for the Reese Kennel and Mr Evans. So congratulations to Churchfield Sid. We know he's a top dog over four bends. I think we we discussed it. You know, obviously, I think Droopy's Clue was in the final. Mm-hmm. Um, he'd ran some amazing runs, but you know, Churchfield Sid over four bends this sort of trip is 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 top top class, and he he showed it over at Central Park. That was he's- really nice. Yeah, and considering, you know, his his injury and the way they've brought him back, the Reese Kennel, I mean, he's so, so good. And, and a lot of dogs, you know, you, you think, is he going to be just as good when they come back from injury? And quite frankly, <laughs> I think he's even better. So I think he's had a bit of a rest. He's had a bit of recuperation. He's got over his um, injury and he's come back and he's taken some really, really good scalps. I mean, Romeo Command. He's one of the biggest ones out there. And he, he, I think he beat him comfortably, to be honest, in the Kent Derby, Joe. Yeah, yeah, he did. Yeah, it was a good final. As I said, you know, Robio Commander, Vanna Lover, Asbo Lenny was inferred at a big price. Droopy's Clue, as I said, you know, it, it was it was top class. It was a really high quality competition throughout. And he's he's blown them away and he's done a job on them in the final. So, uh, you know, he's he's one of the best around. And this gives it this, the seal of approval, doesn't it? And then Danny at Sunderland, it was a it was a locally trained winner. Great, um, you know, for Johnny Whiskers in the Art Classic, wasn't it? Yeah. Um, Harry Burton, the trainer, uh, Mr. Thompson, the owner. Congratulations to them. You know, great, great win there. Superb, and I, I do like Sunderland and uh, well, both Sunderland and Newcastle's tracks. They were the, actually the very first tracks I ever went to because William Hill owned them at the time. So they they sent me away uh, to Newcastle and Sunderland, and they're great tracks. And I've met Harry Burton as well, and he kept telling me that his dogs were going to do well in the races that they were in, like the graded racing and the handicaps. I think I had one winner because I kept listening, and then I spoke to someone. They went, "Yeah, don't listen to the trainers. <laughs> Never don't listen to the trainers." <laughs> I was like, oh, right, okay. This is very, very early on in my career. So, yeah, yeah. Um, I've learned my lesson from there. But well done, uh, Harry, because you put me away many, many years ago. But I'm thrilled uh, that Johnny Whiskers has managed to get his uh, cat one in the classic. Right, Joe? I think that's it. I think that's everything that we yeah, need to nothing, wrap up, isn't it? Nothing, not, not a load of news this time. So I think we've got a fantastic interview 
lined up with Mike Davis, who's part of the MWD partnership. So uh, take it away. Delighted to say that on the Gone to the Dogs podcast this week, we have part of the MWD partnership. It's Mr. Mike Davis. Mike, how are you? Very well, Danny. I'm really pleased to be here and good to see Joe as well. Yeah, been trying to get you on for about, I think since April, I sent the first message saying, would you mind joining us on the podcast? So uh, what's that, six or seven months later? So we're, we're here now, but thanks very much for joining us. Been trying to keep your arms length, Joe. Yeah, no, not really. Not the anticipation. He was waiting until yeah, we got in the go. top twenty in the charts. We're on yeah. nineteen today, so we're all good. <laughs> um, good stuff. Glad to be here, Jet. Glad to be here, guys. Good. Well, we all want to know how did it all start for you in greyhound racing? Because we know, obviously, you've got quite a long history in the sport. Yeah, it goes back quite a long time, Danny, and, and way before me. Because my history starts with my mum and dad. Uh, my mum and dad met in the Greyhound Racing Kennel at Northall. You've probably heard of Northall. Um, it was the uh, GRA training complex up near Potter's Bar in Hertfordshire. And my dad lived in Hertfordshire. He lived in Potter's Bar. And he grew up there and um, was attracted to animals and went to work at the kennels. And in the mid-1960s, this is. So it was quite a long time ago. Um, and my mum... She was always was always been an animal lover, into dogs in general, and went to work there as well. And they got together inevitably, and that meant that um, they grew up with greyhounds from their from a very early age for them, probably sixteen to eighteen years old. So in the mid nineteen sixties, they were in Northall. Um, my dad worked for Joe Pickering at White City, and my mum worked for Ivor Morse at Stanford Bridge. And they worked with the likes of Tommy Foster, Frank Melville, Mike Burton, Derek Knight. All of the 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 history of the sport was was all at Northall, really. And they worked in in that environment back in the sixties, um, but they left Northall in 1968 to start a family, and uh, they did maintain maintain interest in greyhounds and owning them, breeding them. And they had dogs with Nora Gleason at Wimbledon in the 70s, Tommy Foster at White City. Um, and I was always at the kennels, whether it was Burr Hill or Northall, and just got really into it um, through through their involvement. Um, grew up in West London in Southall, which had a flapping track at the time back in the 70s. Um, space was at a premium. Um, my mum actually bred litters from our house and reared them in our backyard. So growing up in that environment with small pups running about in the house was sort of like, it was, I thought I was a greyhound actually at one point <laughs> when I was growing up because I had the, the greyhound just running about the house. Um, I was always remember being thrown in the back of my mum's estate car, taking the pups to Vernon Fords uh, for schooling. We had a schooling track down um, in Kent. And I think I, that just installed in me, okay, this, this is, What's it? This is normal, actually, isn't it? This is normal for having greyhounds in your house and going and, and taking them to places. So, yeah, that that was it in me from the start. Um, seeing the pups develop, having their qualifying trials uh, was the main attraction for me because it's, it's sort of like, wow, there's a greyhound really running really fast. 
So just getting attracted to that sort of environment. And my earliest memory of an actual track was going to trials in the school summer holidays with my mum at White City and playing marbles on the banking in the stands around the track. So I, I didn't really understand what was going on, but I, I distinctly remember the, the steep banking at, at White City in those really um, days of the 70s when they were just completely deserted for trials, but you could run about. And it's right, right up a, a massive hill, right next to a greyhound track, and the greyhounds were running around at the same time. So it was all really into me at that time. So uh, when I got old enough, mum and dad took me to White City, um, and they kept me busy whilst having a drink or two in the bar. They would tell me to go and collect as many tote tickets as I could off the floor. Um, back then, it wasn't those electronic ones. It was the stamp ones. So it was like cardboard tickets, and they were all on the floor. So everyone throws away, don't know when they lose. Um, so I'd, I could go and grab and collect them all and check them the next day for winners. Uh, never did get a one, though. Never did get a winner. <laughs> don't know why. Just keep, keep you busy, son. Go on, go away, go away and do that. So growing, growing up around that greyhound environment, always meant it was in my blood. And um, every single greyhound that my mum had, she always brought back into the house for retirement. So um, all those litters she had during those 70s, probably four or five, they'd all come back and we'd have seven or eight greyhounds in the house at once. It's like, isn't that normal to have that many greyhounds in your house? So they're all the, uh, the old ones retired. So she loved to keep them, loved, loved them all the way through their lives. Um, so when I got a bit older, I became a regular at Wimbledon. Uh, Wimbledon was our, our local track after White City had shut. And I did miss a meeting for five years in the 90s and started owning my dogs myself with Tommy Foster. So I went from sort of like having it and then being able to understand, okay, what does ownership mean? And doing it, the, I think, the right way, rather than getting involved through something you didn't know anything about. Um, yeah, I had some good guides in my mum and dad and all the people that I knew within Greyhounds. So, yeah, just started owning a few graders with Tommy. So that's my history, really. That's how I got involved. And it's... Uh, Natural to me to be still involved with greyhounds now, as um, I, I love them. I love the breed. Fantastic. And can you remember your first winner? I, I tell you what, I can. It's it was a, a little black bitch called Lucky Lorna, and uh, she was not. She was nineteen ninety four, I think it was. Um, she was out of a very good bitch called Lorna's Girl, um, and some of the uh, really old timers might remember her. So, in terms of that, she's she won an, an A seven at Wimbledon. And got me into owning greyhounds. Lovely black bitch. Um, she had a great life, and we re we rehomed her, and she went on to live to the age of twelve. And she's a she. She always reminds me of okay, how lucky I was to get put into racing. And lucky Lorna, she was her name. That's great, great. And and just going back to something you said about the early days compared to now. You know, you, it was a what school in track in Kent, um, the training kennels in Norfolk. It sounds like there was much better facilities back then um, for, for rearing and breeding and, and, and training pups than there is today. Oh, God, yeah. I just go back and I can only... Uh, I talked to my to my mum the other day about it and she'd say, well, there was uh, Penny Milligan had a schooling track down there as well and Vernon Ford and and you could you could take your pick out of schooling tracks because they'd either be flapping and schooling tracks or they'd just be dedicated schooling tracks that attached to trainers' kennels. And those complexes are gone now. You know, there's they're, they're not there anymore all of those places i'm talking about there are, are, are housing estates and without that sort of like the the, the basis for, for bringing dogs on there's there's not going to be any that much breeding because you can't really get them schooled effectively in the uk so you can you can breed them here now but you'd have to get them over to ireland to get them reared and schooled now 
The big news that has come obviously this year is the MWD partnership. And we wanted to know, like, because I know you've done a few little interviews here and there. Mark Wallace, he's been on Racing Post, Greyhound TV and what have you. But we wanted to get into the nitty gritty and how it all came about with you and the MWD partnership. An interesting story from from my point of view, because it was something that having owned Greyhounds in Ireland uh, with Michelle, my partner, um, we decided to get some greyhounds to race in England in 2017 and 2018. So um, we'd had enough fired really by then, and thought, okay, but let's 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 have a look at some some English racing. So it was, it was on. Uh, we thought there was a lot more in, um, things on prize money and and not the way particularly that the, the tracks were run or looked after, but certainly on from a prize money front. And it wasn't driven by the prize money; it was more driven by how we could get more interest in the, in, in greyhounds. So 2017, 2018, we looked at some greyhounds and and met up with Mark. Um, I really didn't know him before then. And it was like, okay, we want to, we want somebody who's at the top of the game, and we went and saw him, and he was very, very accommodating for us, and and he had all of the a great attitude to to how greyhounds should be looked after, and and how that to get the best out of them, it's it's not just put them on a track, it's actually a, a whole lot of prep, and it's not something I'd seen for a long time from from trainers who wanted to be that into it, so. We um, got a couple of greyhounds to start with, including uh, Celine Ash, uh, Chubby's Caviar, and we enjoyed some success with them. Um, and yeah, they, they gave some really good nights, and it really got us into the bug again of, of owning greyhounds, and it led us to getting uh, Drum Crow Brent in 2020, and he was a lovely dog that um, loved the outside, if everyone remembers him. He loved going out around the outside, and he won the Sussex Cup, and... Um, that uh, by a complete surprise, it was one of those things where you think, God, this has really got me now. So uh, a taste for it has, has developed into, okay, this is a, a major appetite, what we do about it. So it was around that time that Michelle and I looked to come up with a model that worked for us as owners, where we could invest in our hobby and be fully committed with the trainer. Um, the idea was to invest a significant sum to showcase standards in greyhound welfare, staff welfare and training methods. So how do we how do we do that? Um, we approached Mark at that time, explored his thoughts on the idea. Um, he had a lot of ideas himself, obviously, because he's like, okay, well, we could do this, you could do that, you could you could do all the other. Um, but the alignment was there, so the alignment was okay, setting the standards, demonstrating, showcasing the sport, um, and being successful at it. So in, in terms of that, we aligned, we we aligned the, the thoughts and ideas and. Over the next couple of years, kept talking about it, kept developing those ideas until we came up with a proposal to say, how do we put this partnership into practice? How do we work together to actually do something? Um, the goals for that are quite easy to agree because we really shared them. So create a training and ownership team to win as many competitions as possible, create a center of excellence for Greyhound training facilities, set standards for staff welfare and greyhound welfare across the industry, promote greyhound racing and greyhound ownership wherever we can, and also demonstrate a partnership model and share that experience. So those goals, which really were the ethos of where we were going, were put into practice by, okay, how do we 
put an agreement in place that we're both protected as well. So don't just rush into it, have something really informal and say, oh, this will work. No, okay, I'm not used to that. I'm used to saying, okay, we have a plan. We set out what we need to do. We agree, formalize it and say, okay, we both know where we stand. We all know where we stand. And Michelle was really intent on making sure the risk for everybody was managed as well. She's my sort of like sits on our shoulders and says, are you sure you want to do this? How do you want to do this? And so it really fits with how keeping a risk management approach going on, you know. So um, obviously a major decision for Mark um, his and his family to make a huge leap of faith into an arrangement where all his eggs were in one basket um, with just the partnership method. Um, he'd been working with a set of owners for many years. So there's no... It's, it's, 12, 13 times champion trainer, I think 13. Um, yeah, I think it's 13. Yeah, it is 13. Isn't it? 13 times uh, champion trainer. Okay, he's got loads of owners and he's got a business model that, okay, we, he's got to get, he's got to completely um, change his ways of thinking. Um, lots of longstanding people he'd known for a long, long time and he'd have to give all of that up to enter into a partnership. It wasn't an easy decision for, for him and his family, but um, that protection really was the, the, the overrider. It protected, um, that agreement protects us and the investment and him and what he's putting in in terms of the whole facilities approach, how the, the greyhounds are, are going to be trained, um, how, the, how we actually migrate to a place where he's comfortable as well as actually being successful on the track and, and us making the investment. So um, we had to make sure there's protection for all of us, as I said. Uh, we settled on a 10-year initial term. So it's no, there's no small shakes about this. This is this 10 years of this is how we're going to do things. Um, break points throughout that. So if there's something that we don't like or something changes direction, there's break points within that arrangement. But there's sufficient com commitment and safeguards from all parties. So we felt comfortable. He felt comfortable. And it's okay. Yeah, we can do this. So we officially kicked off in March this year. Um, committed to a maximum of 30 greyhounds in training. And um, I've got to tell you that Mark, Sarah, Daniel, Sid, Emily, the rest of the team there, they live and breathe greyhounds. So Ron Mills comes in weekly for the physio. He provides What he provides is invaluable as well. I've seen it firsthand. And um, those types of things where you create an environment that for, for me and for Michelle, it's, it's the best thing that we could have done. Um, it really is a, an environment we've looked for and wanted for the past couple of years. And um, thanks to Mark and his family for making it happen, really. So that's how it's all come about and where we are. Great. And, and tell us about the detail of the, of the plan or some of the details. And, and what are your long-term goals over that 10-year period? I've read a lot about upgrading the kennel facilities, about paying staff the right amount of money and things like that. So, yeah, if you could just give us a bit more uh, meat around the bones of that sort of stuff, that would be really interesting to hear. Yeah, sure, Joe. Uh, we've been nine months in now, so we've got a little bit of um, we've got a little bit of, of, of understanding where we're going, and how we set things up. So um, we've already progressed past where we thought we would be this year. Um, all of the staff pay and conditions have been reviewed. Everyone's got a contract of employment, which was sadly lacking in some places. They're being paid the, the market rates, um, an enhanced pension. They've got added benefits. Um, defined holidays. Um, so we've done a lot of the staff stuff already um, and it's made them a lot happier and, and happy happy people, as everybody knows, if you've got happy people working in an environment, you get usually more productive. You get more out of people. You get, they love being there. It's, it enhances. They love greyhounds and they love doing the work. Well, actually get them a fair reward, which is commensurate with the market. Um, so in terms of that, 
we've seen a massive a massive shift change in a lot of people's demeanors and they're smiley happy people i can't I've, I've worked with a lot of people in my in my working career and and they certainly are, have the passion and the enthusiasm now to to push it even further and that's been enhanced by by doing that piece of work um on the track We've won um, a couple of Cat 1s out of 20 finalists, um, chanted in several others before the end of the year. Um, we, anybody in Greyhound racing at the top end or even just having competition uh, Greyhounds, they know how hard it is to win Cat 3-1 competitions. It is so competitive and you need a fair bit of luck and a, a good Greyhound to do so, um, being trained the right way. So, um, yeah, it's no surprise that our strike rate isn't great because it's so, so competitive at the top. Um, next on the agenda, though, is strengthening the team for a tilt of the derby um, next year, improving those kennel facilities. We've got a massive program of work, and I'll go through some of that for you. Um, we'd like to be challenging for the derby next year, uh, build on the team that we've got this year. Um, we're delighted with the number and the value of the Category 1 competitions that were published a couple of weeks ago in the 24 calendar. Uh, credit to the promoters and sponsors. I, I didn't think they'd do, do as much as they did last year, and they've done just as much, if not more. In particular, PGR, Premier Greyhounds uh, Racing, who are setting the standard, really, in regarding competition prize money. Um, that sport needs, the sport needs to have that top end, because if it doesn't, so it doesn't give the breeders the incentive to breed in the first place, whether it be Ireland or UK. Um, and there's a place for all levels of ability in Greyhound Racing. Um, big prizes, big competitions, what to keep the aspirations going. So... Um, for us, uh, breeding and ownership is, is really pushed by the um, by the prize money levels um, at the top end. The major kennel investments have uh, started. Uh, Mark's identified a programme of work that includes the paddocks being revised, um, a complete uh, upgraded kennel block, care and physio facilities, um, additional security, um, making sure everyone's safe and sound and, and we've got a, a secure environment. But those that work will happen for the, the next 12 months, um, should be setting the standard for ground facilities. Uh, but Mark is by no means uh, the expert on, on care. Mark's by no means the expert on the facilities. He goes around and sees where the best things are, takes the ideas and brings them back in. So you've always got an environment that says, okay, what can we do to improve, whether that be within Greyhounds or whether it be in other sports or um, the, the the um, techniques used, um, bringing those back, whether it be manipulation, physio, whether it be care or or how we even run run the environment. So, yeah, he by no means knows it all, but he, he wants to make sure that it is the best it can be. Um, yeah, we'd love, to, we'd love to go over to Ireland as well, longer term, and compete on their biggest stage, um, try and get hold of the Irish Derby, the Winter Racing Festival, those big events over there. Um, all the traffic seems to come one way, doesn't it? It all comes from over here. Um, so we, rather than um, I'll trace one and coming over here to nick our competitions, how about doing it the other way around? So just getting that uh, that sort of competitive nature going. The, the Irish, love, I live in Ireland, and the Irish love a, a competition. They love backing their own horse, so or their own dog in this circumstance. So yeah, let's let's give it some the other way. Um, well, you're up, up against that. a couple in the eclipse uh, next week, aren't you? So. <laughs> Absolutely, and uh, I, 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 we have grown dogs. I, we have a few dogs with Graham. He, he does a lot of, of, of sourcing for us as well. And Graham Holland is the pinnacle of the sport in Ireland. I I, I know most of the top trainers in Ireland, and he's he's demonstrates what he does by getting the right dogs and getting competition ready. And 
Um, it'll be a great one to have over on him on Monday, I can tell you. If we do that, <laughs> you'll see the biggest smile on my face. And he'll take it all in good heart. He'd, he'd hate to lose, but he's a, he's a good man for, for saying well done after the event. So just, just demonstrating the partnership model, it being successful and making sure that we've got um, um, the goals being met. Um, they're our long-term ambitions. And so we'll just keep on going towards that. We've got really supportive and culture in, in the partnership and um, we have some disagreements, but disagreements are part and part of it. It's always disagreements to actually achieve something better, not disagreements to say something's gone wrong. It's okay. What can we do to improve things? So um, that might be, Oh, we want to invest in this now, or we want to invest in that now. Let's, let's have a program and agree the plan and then have disagreements over the plan, but don't have a disagreements over the objective and what you want to achieve. So, no, we're good. Maybe that gives you a perspective. It sounds like a fantastic partnership and obviously had a, a fair bit of success already. Um, Crafty Chavu is standing out to me as one of the, the best runners of the year. But I'm also quite looking forward to the Eclipse on Monday because uh, I'm going to be there at Nottingham and I can't wait to call either New Inside or Bally Mac John home because Bally Mac John's got the draw, hasn't he, at Nottingham in one. But New Inside, he was ever so impressive on Monday. So I'm just going to put you on the spot here, Mike. Out of those two, who do you think is going to win the Eclipse on Monday? New Inside's going to win, isn't he? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> we're travelling over on the Monday, okay? Um, and we're bringing Sherry Ann O'Donnell. And she bred New Inside. And she bred Tony Duke. So Tony Duke was previously, oh, I've got his name, I'm not going to, she'll, she'll say, oh, he's new in whatever, but previously he was a new in dog. So um, Kevin O'Brien, who owns Tony Duke, um, bought him very young. And we actually got new in Sid off Kevin O'Brien. So he bought several pups, several saplings, and he, he was, we were lucky enough to buy New and Sid from Kevin O'Brien. So everyone's going to be there. <laughs> it's going to be one of those. It's going to be, oh, okay, well done. Always. It's, it's uh, all joy. So, yeah, it's going to be one of those. It's a cracking final. I mean, it's been a, it's been a high-class competition throughout, but it's a really, really mouth-watering final. I can't wait. And I wish you the best of luck. And I hope that's the thing. As, me, as someone who's looking to breed from, from my bitches myself, my the thing I'm worried about the most is giving away or selling the wrong dog in the litter. <laughs> you know what I mean? And, and and what Kevin's facing now, he's obviously got a great chance to clone a Duke, but then having another one that he used to own in the final, possibly beating clone a Duke that you now own, that's that's to me is the biggest nightmare that could ever possibly happen. <laughs> Joe, if I like, I said the same thing, but as soon as we saw the draw, it's what a final. That final is fat. It is top, top, top club. And, and obviously, I follow Graham Raising religiously. And you see all, all the Cat 1 finals. But this one, I think, is one of those standout ones. There was a couple of in, in, with, that we've had in the past couple of months that have been standout. That's right up there with the best quality. Yeah. You've got competition winners, competition runners-up, and Derby. There's two Derby runners-up there. You know, it's, it's massive. I can't wait. I can't wait to call them home on Monday. It's it's like, it's the biggest honour when you get to call the, the good dogs home as well. And when I was doing it on Monday, because obviously we had the three semis and I was like, this is amazing. And then we've got the actual final next week. I just, I, I won't be able to sleep the night before. It'd be great. Can't wait. Um, but uh, I wanted to know, because I love 
uh, hearing about the quirky personalities and, and different things of greyhounds in the kennels. Which dogs that you've owned so far have stood out kind of personality wise? Have you got any monkeys in the kennel? Oh, at the moment, absolutely. The, the greyhounds have their own personalities. All of them are individual. And um, there's a couple that are, are really loving and there's a couple that are really hyper and there's a, there's different different ones for different different things but you'd probably expect that the a sprinter type to always quite be on edge and that, that's really what you want in a sprinter you want some a, a dog that gives it all and they give it all wherever they are and quarteria is one of those dogs where you can't it, he'll put it all in and more on the track and and he does the same at the kennel he's never he's never still he's, he's always on the go and wants to be kept active so um yeah he's got one of those personalities that's absolutely hyper um i'll turn it around and say uh, the ones with the, the most relaxed um you, you, we call him raheem he's mad for sterling and he's um he's emily's favorite and he's he is just so 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 sedate. He's just like a big cuddly bear. Um, and it's the same with the the, the, the little the Bunny Mac Taylor. You know, she's she's one of those which waggy tail, waggy 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 tail. No matter what, and on on the podium even she she doesn't care who. It's any anyone. Come on, come on, come give me a pack. Come on, give me a a, a cuddle because she's uh, yeah she's lovely. So if ever you see Bunny Mac Taylor, she'll always welcome you regardless of who you are, where you are, whenever. She's one of those. So yeah, the different personalities everywhere, and it's I, I love dogs' personalities, and I've we've had dogs at home, and you just get to see them and know them, don't you? Once they get out of the environment of the kennel, the kennel there, you can see the personality. But once you get them home, it's like, wow, you you really have got something special. So yeah, there's we've we've had quite a lot of, of dogs at home through the through the years, and um, when you talk about dogs' personalities, um, I, uh, we actually had a dog called Kildare Lark um back in 2007 2008 he won the herder of the year twice he won the grand national in 2008 and he was a lovely silver brindle dog a great looker mind of his own completely though uh took him home after retiring he, he had he won 47 races um killed their lark um and he was one of those where you wouldn't you couldn't you couldn't put him into a place. He would dictate what he wanted to do and where he wanted to do it and where he wanted to go. He'd pull your arm off on the lead and, um, but uh, spend most of his time lying down. But when he wanted to go, he wanted to go and you have to take him. He'd definitely let you know. And um, unfortunately, he got cancer when he didn't die when he was seven. But he was such a good, great family dog because he he wouldn't do anything in the house apart from just lay down and and let our children run over him and and go let, let anybody do anything to him but it, when he was his time to go he said no i'm going and that was the same on the track he was turned his head on on the track you'd walk him onto the track and he would just turn into okay i'm gonna do this i'm gonna go as fast as i can as quick as i can and that's how he was in the lead you put his lead on and he'd go take you for a walk through the forest and you'd be running after him he'd be like a like a oh god stop come back there's nothing to chase yeah but he's oh. anyway that was killed that lark and, and that reminds me again of another couple of dogs men of men of hope um another dog that we had from dolores ruth she sold him to us and he won the champion hurdle in 2010 and his dam was razzle dazzle pearl and if you know Razzle Dazzle Pearl, she was a superstar brood bitch. Uh, Razzle Dazzle George, JFK, Riga, Kingo, uh, Makeshift, load of others. She was superstar brood uh, 13, 10, 12 years ago. But Men of Hope, he was a he was a stunning black dog, our top honcho. And the top honchos I've ever seen back in the day, um, very intelligent and mannerly. 
and particularly out to Laura's Ruth, she would bring and raise her dogs to be so mannerly. We took him home and he was on our sofa for 10 years and he was the most sedate dog I've ever had and would be very, very manly. You wouldn't have to teach him to, not to take food off the table or anything. He would he would know. It's sort of like, how did you know not to be naughty? <laughs> it's none of those things. So, yeah, Men of Hope, he was a lovely dog. Um, and I, was, I also had a half share in the dog. Just, not rather than personalities. This is more, I think, the things that, that got me hooked in. So um, I had a half share in a, in a greyhound called Mark My Words. Um, he was a British bred dog. Um, he was trained by Paul and Esther Salis, uh, and I bought him. In, uh, I bought into him for, with Mark Beverley and Amy Woodhead back in 2010, and he was out of a, out Westmead Hawk and Jazz Hurricane. Um, won the 2012 Summer Classic at Monmore, but he was massively genuine and a lovely sedate dog as well. He lived out his life with Paul and Esther Salis, but. That that his personality, Paul wouldn't let him go. Basically, he said, "No, you're not taking this dog home. I'm keeping him." And uh, yeah, Paul and Esther. I, I haven't spoken to them for quite a while, but um, I always remember them fondly because they were a lot of good times. In mark my words, and and he, I think he had six competitions or seven cat one finals. He got to only won one, um, but they really know how to do a dog and get the best out for them. Couldn't rate them high enough for how they look after and maintain dogs. They're genuine people too. So. Yeah, it's a long time since I've spoken to them, but just thinking about it made me think about, actually, that was a great time, mark my words. Fantastic. And then and then, sort of on that same theme then, who are the winners that stand out, your favourite dogs that have given you success on the track, either in the past or, or since the partnership started this year? Joe, on that, on that one, there, there's five of the ones I've just spoken about there. You've got... The, the greyhounds we had in Ireland, um, who I say I, I can't forget because they were they were they were lovely, lovely athletes. Um, I owned them with a mixture of Javier Jane, who's a, a big uh, owner in Ireland, a Spanish guy who's a lovely man, Paddy McGilligan, uh, and Keith Allsop. Keith Allsop, um, you'll know he's won the Derby here, Thorn Falcon, um, really really nice man, and um, had great success in Ireland as well. Um, but I, with with one of I, I, those people, I, I owned quite some 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 very very good dogs. Farlow Trent, um, he won the race champions at Tralee in 2013. We then sold him to Brendan Keogh in the KSS Syndicate. He got to the final of the English Derby in 2014 for them. So yeah. it's one of those things. We don't sell many dogs, but back then we we sold him and, and he got to the final of the English Derby. Were you um, cheering so- him on? <laughs> I, do you know? I'll tell you why I wasn't in a moment. Then um, the other another dog was Paradise Maverick. Um, he won the Irish Cesarich at Mullingar, Race of Champions in 2016. Um, and he also broke the track record at Waterford. Um, yeah, he was a lovely dog as well. He was a black and white dog, and um, yeah, very very sedate and a lovely lovely temperament. Uh, on the opposite side of that, a, a, a dog that was all go was Paradise Silver. Um, he won the Irish St Ledger in Limerick in 2014 and he won the Dundalk International 2015, Night of Stars 2015, Fawn Dog, stunning dog, but very, very on edge and a very um, ready to go dog. But last but not least was Mind the Net. Um, love Mind the Net. 
Um, he was favourite for the English Derby in 2014, so I wasn't shouting particularly far low because I had mine the net in the race. Um, and he, it, you know, the 2014 Danny knows the 2014 Derby final because it was won by a salad dodger. <laughs> oh, don't um, bring salad dodger <laughs> up again. <laughs> there's only one. <laughs> there's only one um, person I think who. Um, is is more not gutted, but was more disappointed on the night, and that was um, um, Droopy's Ward connections because he came to win the race, and and Salad Dodger held off, held him off coming home. But anyway, that race is etched in my memory. I've not watched it for probably five years because it, it brings back bad memories. But so, in answer to you, were you supporting Violet Trent? No, I wasn't because my, my the net was in the race. But um, yeah, they mixed it. They mixed each other up and lost it at the first bend. So. Anyway, that that whole mind in that episode though, because he was he was running up in the Scottish Derby to Holdham Spy, and Holdham Spy, what a dog he was! He was um, one of my faves as well. I don't, I don't, I, don't, I have favourite dogs that I own, but I have favourite dogs that I watch and I, and I've followed. And yeah, Holdham Spy was some some greyhound. I loved him. Um, but we've had a great few dogs over the years. Uh, best I've seen though was Westmead Hawk. It's an obvious. On to anybody who saw Westmead Hawk in those two derbies um, in 2005-6. I was in that famous photo that Steve Nash had of Westmead Hawk on parade, where you see all the all the uh, crowd in the background. He's got Westmead Hawk. Nick Savage has got him the lead, and you see the whole stand at West at, uh, at Wimbledon. And I'm in that photo, and I've circled myself, and it's on my wall. I've circled myself in the photo, saying I was there that day in 20, 2006 when uh, when Westmead Hawk won that second derby. It was an enormous buzz, and uh, just looking back on some of them, you've got me started now on some of those the greyhounds. The, the, the most striking, the fastest, most striking greyhounds I've ever seen, though. Barnfield on air and Claire's rocket. And so if you can get some videos of Barnfield on air, um, I saw him break the track record at Hove. Uh, took my breath away. Um, 2006, five, six, around about that time. Um, and the only, only other time I felt that way was when I saw Claire's rocket in the flesh break the track record at Clonmel in the produce stakes. Um, went faster than I've, I did. It took everybody's breath away there, uh, that, that performance of Claire's rocket. Um, so I follow, I've followed for the past 10 years greyhounds both sides of the pond. So uh, you'll always see that, okay, I, I understand and, and know probably the big race results and, and where uh, the big big dogs are coming from within the kennels in both the UK and Ireland. Um, of the current greyhounds, I've got to give a mention, though, to Kuna Crow, who won our first cat one. She is, yeah, she she's a lovely dog too. Um and she still gives her all in, in every race she was. She was at Crayford on, on Saturday and didn't qualify for the final of the, of the, the gold collar, but she was gave her all. She's relatively cheap purchase too, and she won the Grand Prix at, at Sunderland for us earlier in the year. And as you mentioned, Danny, uh, the other Cat 1 winner for us, Crafty Chavu. Um, she won the Empress Stakes at Toaster. Michelle got her. If you, if you don't know this story, it's another interesting one. But if you ever talk to Michelle, she'll never let you forget it. Uh, Michelle got her during the, the Irish Oaks. She, she, uh, a very good friend, the Divley's here, the Divley family from uh, from Galway. Um, we got the chance to, well, Michelle got negotiated the chance to buy her. Um, she went on to win the Oaks, the Irish Oaks. It wasn't expected at the time we bought her, but she went on to win it. And she developed into a massively exciting bitch. Um, she, had, she got a slight injury when she won that um, 
the Empress Stakes, but she'll be back. But I think um, Michelle should be doing all of the sourcing for uh, Greyhounds based on that, because <laughs> given that success, she, she, she was on the winner already. But she certainly hasn't stopped telling us about it either. So if ever you want a, a conversation about Crafty Shavu, Michelle's your lady. Um, our other kennel stars, probably Corteria, as I sent, said earlier on. He's probably the best UK sprinter at the moment. Um, new Destiny. I've got to talk about Destiny. She's just stepped up to six bends. Um, she's going she to going Oxford, Oxford next, Joe. Yeah. <laughs> she's <laughs> going to Oxford next. Sorry, mate. Uh, well, you just mentioned um, Kuna Crow, who obviously broke my heart in the ledger uh, semi-final. Oh, was God. it a hundredth of a second? That one was. Uh, that Yeah, that was, that was yeah, gutted, sh- but... Uh... <laughs> She's short-headed, yeah, she's short-headed, Lauren. And and, I, and I'm, I'm not to say that I don't think uh, Kroonikro did her justice in that final, but I think Lauren would have done more justice. So it's race, racing, isn't it? It's like where you, okay, the, the ifs and buts and the, the nuances. So. There you uh, go. Well, yeah, good luck de- at Oxford. Yeah, good luck. Okay, so New Destiny, as you said, stepped up to six bends and looks, um, you know, right at home at that trip. Well, she's trialling in Oxford, Joe, this week. So... I think what we'll see is, um, yeah, see how how well she'll do over six fifty, and um, I think she's because she'll have to 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 be at her best to to compete, obviously. But um, in terms of um, Lauren, uh, I, I you know I love your bitch as well. She's she's lovely and um, follow her, follow her religiously wherever she's going. Um, I liked her running style. I love the way she is, and I love the way that you do dote over her. So that that sort of thing is just like something. It means a lot more than just seeing a dog run around the track. It's how they what they mean to you, you know. So yeah. So coming back to New Destiny, yeah, she'll give her a good race. I'm sure she'll it'll be very exciting. There'll be a lot of great great dogs in that competition. Um, Bunny Mac Taylor. She's a member of Fantastic Litter, needs all of 800 metres plus. Um, and sh- I think next year she'll be looking at trying to, to win all of those. There are, I think that there's a lot to have on the marathon scene coming up next year because there's a lot of dogs that can step up. So I think it, I, I want it to be a lot stronger than the marathon um, to the scene. And credit to Bet365 putting a competition on in uh, December, by the way. They put on the marathon competition at good cat too at uh, toaster so if we can get that to fill i think that'll be a good comp too i think people um, started no, buying the dogs because the competitions are starting to to emerge and it's going to take time because you can't just put them on and then you know the dogs are suddenly there but i think they are slowly people are buying and interested in marathon dogs again aren't they and you know next year i think you'll see the benefit of that and the and the year after yeah and and the that whole thing around attracting the, the greyhounds and the, the the owners and the breeders to to get to get them get them through, get them coming through, and to buy the dogs, then you've got to have that top end. And I'll keep saying it that that is a showcase of our sport. And the, the, the way to incentivise is to to yes, put some um, prize up at the top level, but make sure it filters all the way down as well. So, which uh, we'll have a. a, a bit of a, a, a thing on that if you want to hear my views on that too but the, the whole thing of of greyhounds at the moment for 800 meters plus for marathons there is a competition being put on which means that people should be stepping their greyhounds up or buying greyhounds that suit them the last dog i'm going to talk about is new Sid because i, I although he, he was he was our most expensive purchase and for me, um, it was a bit of a chance because he was uh, an environment where he was, um, he had nothing on his card um, apart from a trial. Um, but we went on on the people who, who had him, Kevin particularly, saying he's, he's a great dog. And, and Graham said, this is a 28-10 dog, Shelbourne. 
um, if I was to put him around Shelbourne. So we, we got him and he took a while to settle in and he, he was showing bits and pieces. But to start with, the first four or five runs, Mark says, oh, I'm not sure at all. I'm not sure about this. And it's like, okay, fair enough. But he's kept at it and he's a slow burner. You know, he's a slow burner and he's just coming back. And he, that the puppy derby, the puppy classic at, at Nottingham showed that he can run and he can do it on the, in the competition. But the last two comps, he missed, just missed out on the Kent derby final. He had Romeo Command inside and he just couldn't get around him. But just taking him back to Nottingham, he's just come on and been a different dog. And we've got some such high hopes for him next year, just keeping him sound and see where he goes for next year. He's, a, he's the one that I would want to, to, to know that he's going to be doing the best he can because he's as fast as anything. Good luck. It's, it's also interesting to hear, you know, you spl- splash the cash on a dog and it, you know, <laughs> takes time to, to come into his own and show what you know he can do. But it must be sort of, uh, you know, ner- nervous times that, that you might have done your dough possibly and he's not as good as you know. <laughs> now, Joe, <laughs> do you want to talk about doing your dough? Because that's, that's, that to me is one of those things where um, I... 50% of the um, buying decisions are great ones. I just don't know which 50% when you, <laughs> before you made them. <laughs> if you knew, then you'd be fine. Um, We've we got some very good friends. Uh, Paul Emfromson, Billy Boyle, um, they help us out with sourcing greyhounds. They know basically more everybody in greyhounds in Ireland, which means that they've got lots of contacts to get hold of dogs that are probably a bit under the radar to start with. And that's half the battle, trying to get them before they get snapped up for if they're the very very best irish dogs stay in ireland hmm. um, and they get picked up by owners there so it's trying to get them in beforehand or get them as a developing dog and, and get them over so they've done there's quite a lot of sourcing and um we we, we make want to make the best buying decisions we can but we've been generally happy um there are dogs that haven't lived up to expectations that um We've um, Jason Bloomfield's taken quite a few dogs off us um, because we know that we know the traceability is going to be there once they've finished racing, but also the the whole thing of how they look after and how they do greyhounds are, um, at the grade top end graded minor open is is they're looking for those dogs and there's a um, an outlet for us for say okay they're not quite up to where we want them to be so yeah uh, Jason and, and Kelly are, are fantastic at looking after those sorts of dogs and. We've got a great outlet in them. So, yeah, we want to make sure we can we can um, accommodate the best dogs in the kennel. We've only got a limited kennel space. Making sure that we get the best ones means we always have to look at rotating them. So, of course, yeah, yeah, we've got some great outlets. Hi, my name's Lee trying to find a home for a fella called Cool Hill Duster or Gus to his friends. He's a March 19 black dog so he's about four and a half years old now and he's up with the Suffolk Greyhound Trust. He was trained by John Mullins so ran initially at Brighton and then moved into John at Yarmouth. He's a big fella, he's 38-39 kilos, boisterous but incredibly easy to handle, lovely, lovely nature. There's a couple of videos of him on the Greyhound Trust Suffolk website. He's been with them since February, so he's their longest stayer because he's a big dog. And I think people are somewhat concerned 
about his size more than anything because his nature is wonderful. As I say, his name's Cool Hill Duster. His name is Gus uh, to his friends. You can contact the Greyhound Trust Suffolk on 07938 802 627. I'll say that again, 07938 802 627 or email suffolk at greyhoundtrust.org.uk or go to their Facebook page where you can see videos of Gus playing with his ball out in the field. So if you can find space for him in your home, he'd be a wonderful addition to the family. So please take a look. Now let's talk Crafty Chavu. She really impressed in the Emperor Stakes as well, because obviously Mini Bullet was in front and I thought, oh, Mini Bullet stays. Is she going to catch her? And then she got into all that bother at the, the final bend as well. And she still managed to win. That's when I thought she is absolutely top, top class. But obviously she's been off since then. So what's the kind of timescale? Because I know people want to know. What's the kind of timescale of her coming back and what are kind of her targets next year? Because she runs Toaster so well, but Derby, Derby stats against bitches aren't the best so would you put her for a tilt at the derby or would you save her for other competitions she's got to go for the derby danny um uh, michelle um when she, she what she saw I, I actually knocked it back originally she said oh what about crafty chavu the divilies want a, a, a game to sell her i went oh no no not, she's not good enough for us michelle <laughs> she's not good enough you know what we want <laughs> and, and so i've never lived it down danny uh so what Michelle saw, though, was what you probably just uh, just alluded to in Mini Bullet uh, and how she how she won that race. Was she's so determined? She just is. She wouldn't never give up, and she saw those in the races beforehand. She wasn't the fastest when she was developing, but she had that. I'm not going to stop. I'm going to keep going. I'm going to the passion and will to win, and or will to drive on as fast as, as far as she could go. And Michelle said, "You can't buy that usually." So it's sort of like it's in them. And so that's what uh, got her. So when you say uh, next year, so I'll come back to the first question. She's got a clean bill of health from the vet last week. So we could, <laughs> um, it, was a, it was a minor ligament over the top of the toe. So she's fine. Um, it's a question of, is there much for for the rest of the year? I'm, I'm not sure. So it's probably going to, you're probably going to see a first part of the next year and then look at where we can plan where she goes. But the Derby is definitely on the agenda for her. Um, yeah, Mich Michelle would love to see her in the Derby. She's got that early and all that will, you know, which is half the battle. It certainly is. And she'd be only the second bitch to, if she did go that far, she'd be only the second bitch this millennium to win the English Derby because uh, bitches just don't win our English Derby. Would you uh, go for the Irish Derby? They've got a better record over there as well. Yeah, they have, and she'd love that longer run to the bend, the 550 over the 525, where she won the Oaks, and she she loves uh, Sheldon Park, obviously. So um, the Irish Derby isn't till back end, and it's actually quarter four, isn't it? So it's October, November. Um, yeah. So that gives us a bit of a, a longer burn. And, uh, you know, a year's a long time in Greyhound racing, isn't it? Mm. You never know what's going to happen. So you've got to make use and 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 celebrate what's, what's here now. So that that's 
that planning is sort of too far away, Danny. It's not like, yeah, let's try and get the derby in, in <laughs> what's that, May, isn't it? It's, yeah. yeah, try and get that out of the way. Um, but yeah, it's got to be. Anything we can do with any of the greyhounds we're going to go for next year. So we've not been to, to Ireland. We had the chance of going to the Winter Festival um, and Chavu, we could have sort of rushed her back to get her a race there, the bitches race, because she's an automatic entry. But what was the point? Um, we, we're saving her. She's still so young. She's never come in season either. So it's always been that one where you think, oh, gosh, okay, she, I hope she doesn't come in season at the wrong time. So, yeah, just seeing where how she goes is uh, is not racking up in cotton wool at all. It's making sure that we just do everything we plan, but plans change depending on circumstances. So let's see. Mike, can you tell us and our listeners about any exciting young pups that you've got or that are coming through, any that haven't hit the track yet or maybe just starting out? Well, there's not there's nothing here that hasn't hit the track in terms of trialing or um, or uh, racing. Um, we bought a couple of, of dogs out of um, Thurlis, uh, the Casco Unraced, which is quite a prestigious unraced competition in Ireland. Um, the winner and the second, we got we got uh, two slip jigs and vis a vis, and they're just trialing in at the moment. I think two slip jigs. I can't be sure, but I think. Um, I'll make sure. Yeah, he, he has had uh, a couple of races, um, and they're very young. We bought um, the Visit V Dog for the, the Monmore Puppy Derby next year, so hopefully he'll uh, he'll come on from from where he is now. He's uh, he's trying okay, um, but I'm, I don't know if, if you notice what Mark does, and I've learned this over the over the years. You, he brings them on gradually. He's not trying to look for the, the lightning fast trial first time up, and and then it, it, it's a it's a gradual burn for them, and, and making sure that they come on at the pace that they need to come on, rather than trying to push them hard, particularly early doors. The more you do that, the more they probably let you down the first couple of races, or, or you burn them out too. To if you try and push them too hard, especially when they come into the kennel new. So vis-a-vis, two-slip jigs. Uh, we've got a couple of crossfield pups that we've got. So cross, we had crossfield Cora, who unfortunately got a career-ending injury at, on derby final night in one of the support races. Um, a couple of the, the future litters out of uh, their dam, her dam, crossfield Ross, crossfield Grace. So there's a couple of those. We've got a litter of pups in Ireland that's being schooled. We've got some at 14 months being schooled in Ireland. Um, so I can't tell you what they're called actually, but they, if they're, if they're uh, up to the standard, we'll bring them over and they'll be in the kennel. So yeah, keep your eyes open for, for anything that's coming out and trialing for us in the next couple of months. Have you got any plans to maybe develop a schooling track or have something, you know, with the kennels that you can school them over here instead of having to, to go over to Ireland? Do you, do you know, the space we in our, in the in the kennels where in imperial kennels isn't there to to have that um there is a variety of of tracks at trainers kennels and uh, and, and other tracks there's a couple of schooling tracks around the uk that people know about but we've got no aspirations to do that at the moment here um we've got great contacts and great facilities with people in ireland um who are are very good and proven at, at developing litters and developing and schooling and, and rearing dogs. So, yeah, we'd probably go and keep them over in Ireland, Danny. Now, the breeding side of things, is that something you enjoy? Do you do you like researching the different lines and seeing what you can produce? Uh, tell us a little bit about the, the breeding side and how you, you get involved there. 
I'm, I'm not a great studier of, of uh, the breeding lines. Um, the, the, the biggest thing for me is, is racing, and I love the, the racing side of things. Um, we have, though, stock now that could go on and, and develop into great broods. And to, to, see, to take Joe's point earlier on, and um, I know he's already dabbled in it and dipped his toe in the water regarding breeding. It's like um, it then gets you, doesn't it, Joe? It's like, okay, where can I go with this one? Or where can I, where can I, um, what stud dog will fit the, the profile of my bitch here um it, and it feels like it's not an exact science either it's like you, you you're taking a pick for lots of different reasons and it's not something that i particularly think i'm good at because <laughs> the only lists i've ever bred haven't been that good so even though we've had some really good brood bitches in the past so it's not we don't we don't run a big breeding operation we usually have have lease deals so we go back to the the breeders in question leave them all up to that and, and take a pick of a litter and take your chances with uh with with 16 week old pups so um it's something that we could probably do more of and when if you talk to to uh, michelle about crafty chavu it's like okay yeah what we're gonna do breeding wise and where are we gonna go and what we're gonna do the exciting bit there's then following racing so um we definitely need to go back to the deliveries and, and we'll see what they think they they're the experts and masters at at uh, that um, making sure they've got um, breeding coming through. So yeah, it's not my area of expertise. It's don't think it's any of our areas of expertise. Something for the future, definitely, Danny. But to start with, we're not going down the breeding lines ourselves. Interesting. Yeah, I've, I've I've been doing a lot of research on it. I find it really interesting now. But it's one of those things. It's easier to know if you've been in the game a long time because you automatically know the dogs. Whereas I'm, you know, I always say I'm relatively new. So a lot of the breeding lines I have to learn about because I don't just know them because I remember them racing and I remember the litters, etc. So it's all quite difficult. But um, we've got Phil Milner on the the next podcast, and uh, he's really into his breeding. I'm learning quite a lot off him. Looking forward to chatting to him, and uh, he's he's really into to it and i've been recommended some reading and stuff like that so i've been taking some time to do that and, and translating what's worked in horse racing to to, to greyhounds because you think it'd be the the same sort of logic and, and theory and i think that's proven but phil's done a great job reading with with what he's got obviously he re reached a cat one final this week as as well with um, with george so uh, i find it i find it fascinating obviously you're you've got some of the bitches to do it yeah, I'd, I'd say it's something for the future, Joe. And I, and that whole that whole thing around breeding, I, I admire you because it's like it could do your head in. It really could. It could go, okay, where? Boof! Yeah, it could explode because there's so many different options and different things with the with the breeding side. And um, yeah, fair enough. It takes a lot of time as well to look back through that whole progeny stuff. And it's, gosh. Well, well, I said to Phil, I said, you know, if it was an exact science, it would be A, easy and B, boring because there wouldn't be any, you know, you know, be no trial and error and things like that. You just know what would work and then these would be worth X amount and, you know, these would be worth Y because you know what's going to happen. So the fact that it that isn't an exact science makes it interesting, but also very difficult and costly. Think, yeah. So. yeah absolutely you've got to be prepared for the cost I'll, I'll, I'll pick up on the cost because it's people thinking that greyhound breeding is like oh you just go and put them together and then you, you can re it's a lot of money to an effort and time and and it's a year 
14 months before you know what you have yeah. and the, the care of a litter of 10 pups for that long is is a lot of resource and time and effort so fair play to anybody who does it because that's a solid that's a solid way to to um the poor house sometimes it's like how how do you how do you how do you lose a lot of how do you make a small fortune out of brown breeding start with a large one <laughs> yeah yeah it's a good job my wife doesn't listen to these podcasts anymore because <laughs> if she heard that she'd be she'd be telling me not to do it but uh... Yeah, good luck, Joe. Going to <laughs> yeah, make make sure you've got some some partners in with in with you as well, Joe, because it spreads the cost. Yeah, that's all yeah. I was thinking. Andrew and I will be fine, hopefully. Fingers <laughs> crossed. We'll see. I, I say that after two litters, we'll be in tears. But uh, anyway, swiftly moving on, Mike. Now, this is one we always ask our guests, and we ask them if they see a future for greyhound racing, which in itself is quite a depressing question to ask. But obviously, you do. You've got your ten-year plan. You know, you're investing heavily with Mark Wallace. Um, which is fantastic to see. But I will ask you, you know, how would you improve ground racing as it is at the moment to make it a better sport and a more entertaining sport? Well, there's definitely a future for greyhound racing. I'm, I'm Mr. Positive. I'm looking forward to to things developing even more. So it it plateaued definitely, and and I I feel we're on the up. There's more there's more people talking about it. Um, it, even for the good and bad, for the, even for the bad that's out there, people are talking about greyhound racing, which means it's going to have some exposure somewhere, and. The, the future, I think, is much rosier than it was maybe five years ago or ten years ago when I could see it plateauing and declining slightly. I think it's on the up, and it feels certainly that way at the top end of the sport. Um, bookmakers are continuing to invest in it. Uh, they see it as a solid revenue earner uh, from what I'm seeing. There's still a, um, overseas markets to be developed uh, with regards to pictures and, and understanding income streams there. Um, yes, more needs to be paid for the product. Um, I know that and I keep a, an eye on the politics of the sport and I talk to a lot of people um, who are involved with the politics of the sport and they they continue to say positive things about the sport. So if, if people are still enthused at the level to develop business models and to, to progress things, then there is a future for greyhound racing and a, a bright one as long as we make the best use of our opportunities. Um, we need to improve maintain improved standards of welfare the presentation the quality and then the rest of the things fall through from that um, i've got a business background and um, my business approach has always been to be risk-led so you identify what the risks are to your business model or your plan and you put actions in place that say okay how can i address those risks and make sure they either don't happen or they're very likely to of happening and there are some obvious risks associated with our industry, um, whether that be from government legislation, whether it be from um, uh, income streams, whether it be from um, the the anti um, the anti movement. Um, so as long as they're out in the open and you know what they are, the things that are risky to your business model, you then put in loads of actions that say, okay, that's not going to happen because I've got this covered, that covered, that covered. Whether it be through lobbying politically, whether it be through um, enhancing the the the, uh, the product through welfare or through presentation or whether it be um, putting out good good messages uh, good news messages or how great greyhounds are to, uh, at the end of their careers and how they are great pets and, and putting a lot more into the retirement those actions against a risk model is how I run my business or however I've been involved with business it just uh, I think we can do more in that. I think we can do more risk identification and then be transparent with these are the actions that are happening. Because there are so many people who I still talk to who say, where's the money going to come from? Um, 
uh, how are we generating it and what we're doing about those antis that's a bit of a, a, um, a problem over there um it's, we're not transparent enough with what we're doing about it we have a the plan through the the the, the grand the welfare plan particularly but it's not a business plan it's a more a, okay this is what we're doing about our greyhound welfare and our strategy for that it's not about how we actually develop this sport and an industry across the board so when i start talking in terms of those terms to the people at uh, gbgb or pgr or arc or whoever it may be i'll always try and put across the point where the business where's the business-led approach for this for a sustainable industry going forward and sustainability is is across from uh, the top echelons all the way down to the graded racing all the way through from cradle to grave for a greyhound and making sure that we're transparent about that so I, I'm a big advocate, uh, advocate for transparency. There are things you can't talk about, uh, which are business sensitive, which uh, mean that um, you, if they're commercial, you shouldn't be talking about them. But we should be talking about all the other things, um, which I think is a, a bit of a um, an improvement area for, for what we can do. Um, I have spoken to uh, Mark Bird. I have spoken to to Dave Baldwin, Rachel Corden, um, and I and I know I, I know them to talk to. Um, I don't haven't got involved so far in okay, how do we actually make make sure things happen better across the, the industry? But there's lots of ideas and to be practical about ideas, not just to say there's an idea for you, but to say, okay, what are the implications of that idea? I'm gonna come back though to a risk-led approach. If I was on the board, um, I would try and ensure that all members of the board are aware of all of the risks and we have actions to address those risks at the top level of corporate structure. And they are the top thing, top level things that will make a uh, an issue for the sport or develop the sport further. Um, and the GBGB is really the only place to make that happen. Um, if it can be developed to, to make to to enhance the role, I listened intently to your podcast uh, with uh, Mark Moisley, and again, it, it was, there are things there that says we're doing stuff, but we can't tell you about them, um, which is a problem to me. We need to have a way of finding out how we can tell something is developing, not there's something developing. If you were to ask me a direct question, I'll try and give you a direct answer and give you some uh, substantive information behind that answer and that's what we need to get from um the the, the main stakeholders in the sport and i've got uh, uh, there is a, something that has happened quite um positively for the sport and with um arc taking a more active role in how they're promoting the sport and the, the venues that they've got it's um showing that they are being more transparent we're saying these are our plans and this is what we're doing about it um, particularly with the Wolverhampton, um, the new track, and keeping people abreast of what's going on there. I know it's in the public domain, but they're in reinforcing it. And then the involvement with, with Premier Ground Racing, and, and they're being as transparent as possible. Uh, Lord Lipsy is coming out and saying, this is what we're doing. This, And they're putting PR out there, um, whether it's press releases or him going and talking to people, um, making sure that we are more communicative. That's the sort of thing I like to do. If you, say you got a plan and say this is what we're doing about it and this is how far we are through it, rather than not putting the, the effort and time into PR and and saying what we're doing. So coming back to your, is, is there a is there a future for greyhound racing? Absolutely, there's a future for greyhound racing. Um, we need to listen to the stakeholders who I'm hearing are saying let's be more transparent. We are starting on that journey, 
but there's a whole load of things that need to be put in place around that. And it starts for me with a risk led approach. And people aren't, that's a bit corporate, isn't it? Risk led. Okay. Well, we'll just put, it into, put it into layman's terms. If I was to tell you what the biggest threats to you or your family or how you're, you, you're, you're going, you'll say, oh, if I lose my job, that's a big threat. Okay, well, what are you doing to make sure that your company you're working for is solid and financially sound? Or how do you make the, the best use of, of your time and resources to make that happen? Um, and it's, it's sort of like, okay, oh, right, I'm doing it in my, in my head. I'm actually doing that already because I'm managing that because I'm thinking about it. But let's put it down. Let's make it transparent and say this is what we're doing. This is everybody's industry as far as I'm concerned. So that's where I go to start. That's where I've started in the boardroom. And be transparent about what your risks are. I mean, we all obviously are hoping that there is a big, big future in the sport. And with the media rights kind of, I was going to say a battle, it's not massively a battle anymore, I don't think, with the fact that ARC have got so many tracks, SIS don't have as many. Um, I can I can never see a future where we have all tracks on the same page with one media company, which obviously it used to be, and we used to be fine. And now I just think sometimes we are sabotaging different parts of the sport because the media rights side of things isn't quite aligning with what the sport needs, in my opinion. What do you think? Dan, I'd, I'd only pick you up on one thing there, Danny, not to say you're wrong, but uh, there was a lot of people when we did have that environment previously that weren't happy with it because a monopoly situation is not always good for competitive nature, which means it drives the product pricing and possibly quality lower. Um, so we're in a position, regardless of the position we're in, you've got to make the best of the position. And I like competitiveness, absolutely. But even if you don't have that, if you've got the um, understanding across the industry that this is where we're going with the plan, and if that changes because there's a media rights um, um situation where there's two or three players or however many players then you adjust your plan accordingly it just feels like we haven't been there and that herding cats is the the, the phrase isn't it trying to get the right people in the right room thinking the right way that needs personality more than anything else it doesn't need um a, an agenda it needs a personality pushing the right agenda so you need the gender and the, and the personality but the personality i think in those situations is a major thing and we've come a long way, I think, in terms of understanding where that personality is required. And I believe that, that we do have people in the senior positions who do have the right personalities to make that happen. It's whether they, uh, the plan is going to be delivered by them. Uh, if I say just in direct answer to your question, are we going to have, uh, is, it, is it a better environment to have where we are now than where we are before? Um, yeah, I think it is. We need that competitiveness in that market. Um, we need to, to support a plan. We need to support people. And that's where people come disillusioned when they don't have that people, personality and the plan together. Interesting stuff, Mike. Thank you. Um, you know, it's great to hear your thoughts on the matter. Um, I think, you know, I, I agree with, with nearly everything you say. And, and I think, you know, you listened to the interview with Mark last week, obviously. I think the transparency is, is key. Stuff is happening. I don't think no one's doing, you know, nothing and they're just sat there twiddling their thumbs. But it would be good to understand as a, as a major stakeholder, you know, our, ourselves, all of us in the in the industry, what's going on, what the plan is, when is it going to be delivered, you know, what what's, 
I think I think the key thing that comes out, you know, we asked Mark and it comes out on social media too, is just about a plan, isn't it? You know, some sort of mid to long term commercial plan and what are the goals and how are you going to achieve them? Um, and I don't think we know what the answer to that is at the moment. I agree with you, Joe. And um, there's a couple other things that I think would make this uh, industry a, a lot, a lot um, healthier. Um, and it's to maintain a strong press. Uh, the, the, the press uh, environment needs to be challenging to the sport and supportive in the right measure. Um, and we, we are, we have different areas of press who are uh, good at it. And somewhere we, I don't think we do enough in that, in, in making, holding the industry to account in certain aspects and then exposing where we could get better. Um, and I don't think it's a, it's, a, it's a problem with the people involved in the press because I think they are really good people. Everybody I've met in the press is really, really behind the sport. Um, it feels that they are um, sometimes when they don't report on things or they report on things in a, in a, um, a subdued manner, it's because they are a bit worried about, okay, if I put my head above the parapet here, I'm going to have a problem. And I don't think anybody in the press should be afraid to to voice their opinions. And um, I say I speak to a lot of people in the press, and I, I respect them as people. And I can see where they where why they write some of the things they write, and they don't go that one step further and say actually an opinion piece here. Uh, the, the the person who does is usually sometimes vilified for it, and that's Floyd at the Greyhound Star. But I'm always interested. I, th- I find he gives the biggest insight into the reasons why we are where we are. And these are some of the things we could do about it. And I've been sick and tired of banging my head against a brick wall because nobody's listening to me. I think they are listening to you, to Floyd, but they're not doing anything about it. <laughs> so they hear what you say, Floyd. But yeah, okay, you're, you're, you're a bit too radical. It's not right time. But he's, he's, he's got 40, 40, 50 years in the sport. And I respect what he writes because he normally writes it from a passionate side of actually I, I, I value greyhound racing and this is where we could go forward. So I, I really, I, I think we should need to maintain a strong press. Um, however it may be as an independent, independent as it can be because it will challenge us and push the sport forward. And that um, is a, is one of my bugbears. I really would like strong press. I don't mind criticism by the way. That's where I think we need to learn. We only learn from criticism. And if it's the worst thing that could happen, okay, what actions do we take to make it the best thing? Or how do we mitigate that risk? Again, I'll come back to risk. Um, the other one is maintaining welfare, of course, making sure our the welfare is at, at, at the forefront, but not to the detriment of staff welfare. And welfare could be mean a lot of things. Greyhounds, yeah, animal welfare. But staff welfare up there is one of my, say, one of my, things that I, I want to make sure everybody across the industry is rewarded fairly, is um, accommodated to the right terms and conditions of their employment. And um, it is a, bit, a big um, shoot yourselves in the foot moment if we get uh, exposed in the way that we aren't paying um, paying the correct money to the right people at the right time for the right contract. Um, so those sorts of things have to have standards have to be raised. We want to show how that can happen, and we are. But it's got to come through a funding model that's sustainable. The funding model that's sustainable has got to filter down to those people on the front line in our industry, the people who look after the greyhounds every day, 
Um, and if we aren't getting the right money into the, the trainers' pockets to pay those staff, that means the promoters aren't doing their job. If the promoters aren't getting enough money to, to pay those trainers the right money so they can sustain the industry, we aren't doing our right. The, the rights uh, situation isn't correct um, for the bookmakers. And if the bookmakers aren't paying the right money, then it all filters down. So it's got to start with the people at the coalface and make sure they're treated right. And then it says, okay, what's the funding model that supports them that actually makes this business model work? We've been far too reliant, I think, on um, just saying bookmakers need to pay more money rather than demonstrating what the effect is at the, at the people level and the people level impact on the greyhound level. So people, people first, greyhounds are immediately following that because the greyhounds get looked after depending on the people being in the right conditions who are looking after them. So um, I'm going to keep banging that drum, particularly that's my, my bugbear is making sure that we are sustainable through a model that says these people at the bottom of, of, of not let's say the bottom of the, the ladder, but the people in the coalface are rewarded and paid the right money. Excellent. Great thoughts, Mike. Um, appreciate it. And we've got one more thing, if you will humour us. It's a question from social media, and it's a question from an ex-guest of ours, Peter Harmden, trainer's rep. Um, he says, well, he asks, after Mark's recent brush with the disciplinary committee, would you say that trainers should be given more support in cases with the GBGB having such a professional prosecutor? To many, it seems unfair. Okay. Yes, I do. I really do think trainers need support in that environment. Um, I've, I was very close to that environment and I saw it firsthand. And the GBGB is the best environment I've seen as a regulatory body in most of the industries I've been in. They um, are fair regarding the rules. So, there are several things that anybody before a disciplinary committee needs to understand before they go in. And it can be quite technical. So knowing the rules is the first one. You've got to know the rules. And I challenge anybody in this industry to say if they know the rules, because I didn't know the rules until what I've been through in the past um, six months. Um, I read the rules. I'm boring, I know, but reading them is not knowing them. So reading the rules and understanding them, interpreting them. For a trainer or for anybody put in front of a disciplinary committee, knowing the rules, you've got somebody on the other side of the table who knows the rules and knows how they work. You're at an immediate disadvantage because you aren't responding to the rules. You're responding to what you believe to be the case that is in front of you and you're representing. So for a trainer to know the rules, they need support. Um, they haven't got time to read the rules. They've got a busy kennel to run or um, if you're at whatever, however you're in front of that committee, you've got other things to worry about rather than knowing the rules. So they need support on knowing the rules. Presenting a case in the most appropriate way so if you are, if I was to put you into a disciplinary committee and say, okay, present your case to say why, what the mitigating factors are about why you broke the rules or why you think you haven't broken the rules, how do you present your case? The disciplinary committee is effectively a, um, a small, a mini courtroom 
because there are parameters around how that works that are very similar to judicial system around presenting of evidence, presenting of facts, presenting your, your case in the right way. You put a trainer in that scenario and they, they won't necessarily put themselves presenting the case in the most appropriate way. Again, they'll present things the way they, they think they should be presenting it in a layman's term, but it's not for the layman, those disciplinary committees. Um, and also, they need to, um, the third point I'd make is that people walking into that room need to be realistic about what the outcome will be. Because the realism is um, this could happen. This, I, I could um, get sanctioned here or I could get fined here. But not knowing that, that could be the outcome and being very disappointed about the level of sanction that, that takes place. So in answer to Peter's question, trainers need support when they go into that environment for those reasons because you can't expect them to represent themselves effectively now you could argue well they could go and pay for that representation now i know that representation costs a lot of money um mark and i went through a disciplinary environment and it didn't cost us anything but that's because I have a legal no, 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 no nuance of, of I understand legal environments. I understand legal proceedings. And I could apply that learning to how the case was presented, what the case was against the rules um, or knowing the rules and how, making sure you put it forward in the best possible way. There was no legal review when I went to this disciplinary committee with Mark. There was no um, um, external support available to us as part of being part of that that um, environment and i just it, it bewildered me a little bit because I, I was ready for it mark wasn't ready for it when he had his first hearing but once you actually presented the case against the with the evidence and um within the rules the rules base th there was a bigger picture that the the committee could see and that's where I think they're not necessarily miscarriages through that process, but there is a daunting procedure that needs to be addressed from a trainer's point of view, that they understand all of those things before they go in and have that support so they can present their case in the best possible way. And then you don't get um, either miscarriages or you don't get um, uh, uh, sanctions that aren't appropriate with the, with the offence. So... I'm just going to give you a summary of all of that. Absolutely, Peter. Trainers need more, more uh, support. Um, how that support is given to them, um, I don't know. But, yeah, just my experience has been one that I can see that I really respect the GBGB for, as a judicial authority or to run, this, to run the rules um, environment for Greyhound Racing. I know it's in safe hands. Because being through it, I know how rigorous they are about evidence. I know how rigorous they are about facts. And I know how rigorous they are with the panel they have, which is usually a mixture of uh, the legal system, so barristers, senior barristers. not These are KCs. These are people who are at the top of their profession mixed with people who sh know the sport. And they have a, a mixture on that panel who can evaluate circumstances according to a legal view and understanding the sports view. But the trainers who go in there need to be fully educated beforehand. And um, all I can say is, Peter, yeah, take, I 
recommend that to you to take that one forward if you could to to see where that can go and even if it's a small bit of support it doesn't need to be a huge amount of money but just a knowledge and a briefing for the uh, for the trainers going into that situation great stuff thanks mike great question peter and great uh, insight and answer mike appreciate it i think that wraps it up though I think we're done. And um, look, I think Danny and I would like to thank you for your time. As I said earlier, you know, I've been trying to get you on for a while. Did not disappoint. It was great to hear about your past, about what you're doing now with the partnership. You know, it's it's really exciting. It's something new. It's something fresh. And I wish you every success uh, in the future and, of course, on Monday. Joe, good. Joe, Danny, good luck with your, your future podcast. I'm going to say I'm simply a fan of Greyhound Racing. I love to see good greyhounds. I love to see them perform on the track. Um, this means I admire them, whether they be ours or somebody else's. Uh, the dogs are the stars. Don't ever forget that. Um, and I'm the first to say well done to a trainer, an owner, when their greyhound performs well or wins competitions. I find this is the same for most trainers, actually. Most trainers out there and owners in the sport. I just love to see good dogs competing against each other, coming back safe and sound, going again. I love this sport. Well, it was great to hear from Mike Davis. Plenty of insight, of course. And I mean, he finished the interview in a perfect way because he just loves greyhound racing and the passion shone through right throughout the interview. I really hope you enjoyed it. And hopefully, you know, in the, a year or so, uh, when they've had a little bit more, more success as well and they're a little bit further on in the kennel um, uh, reboot uh, and refurb that we can get him back on or, or maybe get Mark on as well and see what he thinks. Um, of the MWD partnership and and how he um, tackles it from the trainer's uh, side of things. So great to hear from him. Wish them all the best of luck in the future as well. So let's move on to the betting because we've got three absolutely massive finals this weekend. The first is at Crayford on Saturday lunchtime. It's the gold collar final. Uh, Joe, who's in the lineup? We've got Iamza Sydney in one, Moaning Rossi in two, Largill Jess in three, Mini Bullet four, King Ezra five, and Gutsy Jet, the only seeded runner, middle seed in six. Danny, go on, you can start off. This is a this is a really nice final. We had a ding dong battle in the semi final between two of these as well, didn't we? We did, and I think it's going to be the same. Yes, I really fancy Lawhill Jess to go seventeen from seventeen over course and distance because. I mean, why would you not? She's already 16 from 16. Why would she get beaten in the final? I mean, I am the Sydney really, really put it to her last week in the semis. They've switched around though this week. Obviously, I am the Sydney in one. Law Hill Jess is in three. They're both going to clear Moaning Rossi. I have no doubt about that unless Moaning Rossi decides that one, on just one day, he wants to break out the boxes as quick as everyone else. I hope it's not on Saturday because I do think Law Hill Jess and Iams of Sydney are going to pince the movement and then Law Hill Jess just going to blow them away. Maybe by a head this time though, but I just think she's got it in the bag and heart and head, I think, are both in alignment this week because I really do like her. Obviously, she's she loves Crayford. She loves the 540. And I just think, I just love it for connections to make a 17 from 17. Obviously, I am the Sydney is a big danger because he's got the inside track this time around. And Minnie Bullet, you can't underestimate her. I just don't think she's got the guns early for the two 
big ones in the market this week. So Law Hill Jess over Iams of Sydney. Let's go for the TriCast with Mini Bullet as well. What do you reckon, Joe? Yeah, I, this is one. It's hard because you obviously at the moment it's two to one, Largill Jess and Iams of Sydney. Obviously in the semi final, they they were drawn. Iams of Sydney was in two, Largill Jess was in in one. You think if that was switched around in the semi final, the, the result might have switched around possibly. And obviously in the final, Iams of Sydney, as you say, is in trap one. Jess is in trap three. Will that make a difference? Pop possibly, and it's sort of a pick 'em two to one. I don't have a strong opinion on it, but I think that I'd probably just take a chance on Millie Bullet at eight to one, just because she did a really good time last week, but she does have that really quick break in her. She hasn't got a great draw in four, but if she can get away and do a quick split, then the others are probably going to find it hard to catch her. So it's not it's not a strong selection at all. It's a really good race, but I just think she represents a little bit of value at, at eights over the other two. And you know, like you said, a dog at 16 on 16 over course of distance, how do you go against her? But I am as a Sydney showed that he he's not bad himself. And in trap one here with her in trap three, it, you know, it might it might be different again from the semi-final. But uh, yeah, min, mini bullet, a tentative selection. OK, mini bullet, a tentative selection. Right on Sunday, we have got the puppy derby. Of course, it was plagued by issues last year. This year, touch wood. Everything has gone swimmingly. And the McNairs have four of the six in the final. So they've got a bit of a stranglehold. And I genuinely think it's going to go to the McNair team. Joe, what do you reckon? Who's In fact, first, who's in the lineup? Well, you've got King Capaldi in one, King Coombs in two, King Memphis in three, who broke the track record last week in the semi-final. You've got Call of Annie Mercy. Uh, middle seed in four. Droop is Eddie, also a middle in five. And Queen Dusty, who's the only wide seed, of course, in six. Danny, go on then. You can start again. What do you, what do you reckon? I mean, I know he's probably going to be short, King Memphis, but he's the track record holder. And he's in the same location as he was last week. He put in the fastest split of 4.03. Now, he's not broken quite as quick as that uh, in the rounds prior, but... He's just learning his trade still, I think, because obviously they're all still puppies. They can be a little bit unpredictable sometimes. But if he manages to get out and just clear King Coombs and King Capaldi on his inside in one and two, which he should do, to be honest, I think he's going to be unstoppable again. And who knows, depending on how the track's running on Sunday, um, as long as we don't have too much rain and it's going you know, normal, he might actually break his own track record because he's on the improve. He's a December 21 I mean, he's out of that fantastic um, litter of Droopy, Sydney and Queen Beyonce who have got three in here because King Capaldi and King Coombs are both uh, also from the litter. I just think King Memphis is the cream of the crop from the litter there. However, the one thing I will say uh, for a bit of value is Queen Dusty. I thought she had a good chance because I've watched Droopy's Eddie a few times and he just edges in slightly um, towards the rail. Obviously, he's a middle seed in box five. And I thought Queen Dusty here has got an absolute solo on the outside of the track. She's the youngest in the field. She's a Jan 22. And she's put in some really good times. You know, 29-22 is the, well, I think it's third or fourth in, in the lineup when it comes to fastest times here but I just thought if she can manage to keep herself high wide and well I was gonna say handsome beautiful on the outside then clean dusty for me I thought could follow King Memphis home because obviously she's she's got the most scope to improve because she's the youngest in the field but 
it's an absolute cracker of a final and I think it's pretty much guaranteed to go to the McNairs, Joe. Yeah, you you think so, but you never know. I mean, that's a good shout with Queen Dusty. She's twenty five to one at the moment, so um, you're going to get big prices for the top two and and top three markets there. So uh, that might be the might be a play as well. Look, King Memphis was unbelievable last week, wasn't he? Um, you know, track record it goes without saying, but. We have seen that it's difficult for, for for dogs and bitches to to back up a track record run the following week. You know we've we've mm. seen it in the Derby. Obviously, that's a longer campaign and it's it's harder on a greyhound. Um, but but is, you know can he can he back that up a week later? P- possibly, but it's going to be difficult. I just think a spot of value for me is King Capaldi in um, in track one. You know, got a nice draw. He didn't get away. He didn't do his best split. Um, on Sunday, four twelve, but he's he's dipped below four seconds a few times. If he can do one of those and, and get away, he's more than capable. You know, twenty nine oh seven last week, twenty nine oh nine. He's 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 pretty consistent. So you know, he's got that inside line. If he can get a good breakaway, he's five to two. You know, and if King Memphis can't replicate that, which it will be tricky, um, and you know, he he. He's not a serial winner. King Capaldi's won what his last four, I think. King mm. Memphis is, um, you know, one two, one two, one. He, you know, he he doesn't always win, and he can be a bit slower away. So um, yeah, we'll we'll see. Um, you know, he was beating the Puppy Collar final. Although to be fair, he ran, a, he ran an absolute cracker there after a little bit of trouble um, and nearly reeled in Longfellow. But um, I just think, yeah, five to two, King Capaldi for a little bit of value against the odds on Jolly here. Um, but I do think um, your shout with. You know, Queen Dusty possibly in the in the place markets um, is 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 good. Good, uh, and we go on to Monday. And I was there on Monday calling the semi-finals of the Eclipse. And I, this year, we have had some absolutely sensational semis and finals. And the Eclipse for me is one of the standouts that I've seen all year. Um, on Monday, it was an absolute honour to call them home. I have to say because you've got you had so many like Derby finalists, Derby winners, all sorts in the lineup, and they had I, I totted it up on Monday. I can't remember now because I've binned my notes because um, I'm I'm smart like that. But they had so many Category One wins between them and uh, all all the finalists, and I was just like, I, I don't know who's going to come home in front. The one dog that I absolutely loved on Monday, of course, as people will know, is Burj Khalifa. And he came second at eight to one. I think he's actually going to do the same thing or at least come in the top three. And I know that you can get the top three market as well on the final on Monday. Someone tweeted about uh, me about it already. And uh, I will be getting on Burj Khalifa in the top three. So I think that's a massive bit of value. But having watched all the semis and called them and having spoken to uh, Mike Davis as well. Obviously, he's really keen on you in Sid. But Bocco's Crystal is the one for me to ping and make every yard. She was so quick out of the boxes. And yes, she recorded the slowest time of the three semis on Monday, but she was just so quick. And if there's any kind of tangling in behind, because we have, of course, got five railers and one wide, I just think she could get away from them here and just keep on going and going. Obviously, she's got a great record in Ireland. She she put in a 491 split on Monday, which was 10 spots quicker than the week before. <laughs> you know, she's improving with every look round that she's having at, at uh, Nottingham. I think she's in a great draw again. Uh, you know, she's 
an Irish runner and, and you see the Irish runners when they come over here, they don't care where they're seeded because over in Ireland, every race gets drawn and they don't care over there. They, they learn how to navigate round dogs and they don't just have to be in the rails box or they don't just have to be in a middle or a wide box. They do learn a lot more really um, over in Ireland, I think. And I, I actually would love to see that adopted over here, uh, the non-seeded um, part of things not 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 necessarily an unseeded but a bit more of a draw and not always getting your favored box so then you do learn you do learn how to have a battle you do learn to just go outside of dogs if there is one on the inside of you so it certainly works over in Ireland I think it could work over here but I think I'm probably on my own in that um however I think she's a super bitch I think Bocco's crystal for the win and I absolutely love Burj Khalifa the big massive uh, all legs puppy that he was last year has turned into an absolute machine. I think he's fantastic. So banging that drum as well with Burj Khalifa, I always do. I'll be uh, calling them home on Monday as well at Nottingham, which I can't wait for. And yeah, I'm hoping it's a Bocco's Crystal, Burj Khalifa, new in Sid, one, two, three. However, what I will say, Joe, is Bally Mac John's got the draw because Newcastle in, uh, sorry, Nottingham in the red jacket go hand in hand. Do they? I was reading some people on Twitter saying it's not always a great ping box, Nottingham. I don't, I have to admit, I don't watch a lot of uh, races at Nottingham apart from the big, big comps. But No, uh, it wouldn't be a ping box, but the record of ones right. is very, very good. <laughs> okay. Well, I will listen to what you say, but but not listen, because I think New in Sid is an absolutely mad price at three to one here. I have to say, I, when I looked at the race, um, you know, ahead of us doing this, I couldn't I couldn't believe it. I thought he'd be favourite or co-favourite with Cloner Duke. Um, and he's he's behind Cloner Duke and Bocco's Crystal. Um, now I, I like quite like his drawing, too. Um, he's got to clear Bally Mac John, but um, you know I think he, he's more than capable of doing that. You know he's got a twenty nine sixty eight and then twenty nine fifty five last week, by far the quickest time, and he's been sensational in his heat and semi final. I think you know he's he's looked really impressive, as you said. We heard from Mike, and he said that you know he's starting to show. Um, you know, his potential and what he can do now and what they always thought he could do. Um, Cloner Duke's been good, you know, a very good dog. We know all about him, but, you know, the, the times aren't um, breathtaking. I think Burj Khalifa was sort of closing in on him last week. He was didn't put the race to bed, certainly, and Burj Khalifa ran a, ran a great race. Again, I, you know, I agree with what you said, that that wide, that wide draw should get a nice toe round and um, can certainly place. Troopers Google's got a nightmare drawing in five, it has to be said. Mm-hmm. Um, and Bocco's Crystal, you know, she's she's more than capable of, of winning, but I just can't get away from, from New in Sid. As I said, into he's got the times. If he does what he's done in the last two runs, he'll be hard to beat. And I'm I'm shocked that he's three to one as big as that. I just um, yeah, it really stands out to me that. So uh, I I'll definitely be having a go on on New and Sid on on Monday. Well, now you've told everyone it's three to one, Joe. It's not going to be three to one anymore. Four, <laughs> yeah, four yeah, times. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the power to move markets at totally <laughs> yeah. betting the wrong way. Um, <laughs> yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Now, I think that is everything for the big finals, of course, this weekend. We are thrilled that you've uh, listened this far to Joe and I talking about all the big finals. So hopefully you've enjoyed the interview with Mike Davis as well. Uh, If you have got any comments, please leave us a review. I'm aware a few people were saying that the music's been a little bit loud. So I like a little bit of a boom in my face. I'm aware that most, well, not most people, but a lot of people don't. So I have changed it. I have brought everything a little bit lower. If there's anything that 
because obviously I listen to this podcast about 10 times, I feel. And to me, it always sounds fine. But by that time, my, my, my brain and my ears are fried. So I'm trying to get other people to listen before we release it so that it is going to be a bit of a smoother ride and you don't have to go up and down with volume buttons. If there's anything else we can do, let us know. Leave us a review if you've enjoyed it. Um, give us some five stars so we can move up from number 19 on the chart. And uh, yeah, hope you've enjoyed it. And Joe, as always, it's been a pleasure, my friend. Thanks, Danny. Yeah, yeah, thank you. And um, we'll chat in a couple of weeks, I'm sure, if not before, of course. <laughs> we certainly will. Who's on the next pod, Joe? Well, I don't want to. I don't want to bock it because uh, we've got Phil Milner on the next podcast. Again, he's someone I've been trying to get on for a while, but he's a very busy man. Um, and it's been hard for us to coordinate our diaries, hasn't it? So, uh, but we've got something in the diary now. I'm hoping it'll be on really interesting. Obviously, owner, trainer, breeder. He's really into his breeding. Had a finalist, uh, Keyfield George, um, recently in the Classic. So, um, yeah, really looking forward to speaking to Phil and hearing what he has to say. And if you've got any suggestions of future guests, do get in touch with us. I'm at Danny V Jackson. Joe is at Totally Betting. You can find all our handles in the show notes. But it's a goodbye from us for episode 23. I've gone to the docks. See ya. Thanks for listening to Gone to the Dogs, released every other Friday. For more info or to reach out on Twitter, follow at Totally Betting and at Danny V Jackson. Podcast produced and edited by Joe Andrews and Danny Jackson. Voiceover by Katie Harvey.